Anniversaries are a time for liminal anxiety. A time for uncomfortable reflections and questionable resolutions. The marking of any one moment as special risks rendering every moment around it slightly less special by comparison, when really all the moments are special, which is akin to none of them being special. Ultimately, anniversaries should be like every other day, a time to embrace the void. virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 200 of Embrace the Void. How the fuck did that happen? I do not remember a time before this podcast. It's like 10 world-ending crises ago. I don't even remember what was happening back then. I've been avoiding thinking about this episode, personally, as I don't have anything special reporting to do like I did with the ETV 150 Sovereign Nations episode. But, you know, I wanted to do something special. So given the ongoing moral panic about critical race theory in education, I thought it might be interesting to spend this anniversary talking about my first year in my education PhD program. There's been sort of a lot of fast and loose reporting going on about how critical race theory is suddenly being used to indoctrinate children. So I thought it might be valuable to talk about what I've seen and heard over the past year. In the spirit of autoethnographies, let's remember first that this is just my own experience and so provides only one limited perspective on the situation. I can't say for certain how much of my experience generalize, though I will note where I suspect it's more or less likely that they do. The headline here isn't going to be show-stopping. I, I can say with certainty that critical race theory is an important area of thought within education and that teachers getting their EDDs and their PhD programs, in my department at least, are being taught how to incorporate critical race theory into their pedagogy. I also think it's fair to say that much of the contentious material highlighted in the news is inspired by educational CRT or related fields like critical whiteness studies. Most important, though, it's clear to me CRT should remain an important part of pedagogy and should absolutely be, we should absolutely be applying it both implicitly and in some cases explicitly in the classroom. Uh, regarding the concern of indoctrination, I only ever had one interaction that I will discuss uh, that would worry the anti-woke despite frequently raising concerns and objections in classes. Um, as, and as you'll see, right, that particular exchange was very tame and easily resolved. 
Um, so my ultimate goal here is to de-escalate the rhetoric around CRT in education, which means that there's not going to be any sexy bomb throwing in this episode, um, but hopefully it will be some useful information for those who want to know more about what is going on. So in my first year of classes, I've read a lot of critical race theory and a bunch of other popular theories in education from the past few hundred years. It's been honestly, a fairly overwhelmingly positive experience. And it has helped me, I would say, grow a fair bit as an educator. Um, I've always loved history in particular, growing up on stories about ancient warfare and mythology. Uh, but among, you know, but the amount of history I've engaged with in the past year uh, has been sort of, that has been, in my opinion, studiously left out of history books, uh, has been both overwhelming and motivating. So many things that we never covered or covered briefly in my experiences, uh, even in a well-funded fu well suburban accelerated coursework situation. Um, it's unfortunate. I, I feel like, you know, I've long been fascinated by the horrors of history, by things like the Nazis and World War II, but I didn't see how much of those horrors arose out of a, a much larger period of vaster colonial horror and how much of these horrors persist under neocolonialism and neoliberal auspices today. So first, some basic info about my department, um, what I took this first year and also what was assigned in those courses. The Rutgers Graduate School of Education is sort of roughly divided into researchers who focus on things like developmental psychology and researchers who focus more on what we think of as capital T theory. Um, this, as far as I can tell, appears to be the result of sort of peculiar administrative politics in this particular department, rather than the result of some sort of ideological conflict that the woke won where they, you know, separated themselves off from the empirical sciences or something like that. It appears much more to just be a quirk of the department, um, not aimed towards any sort of particular ideological end. Uh, as far as I can tell, organi the organization of educational departments varies quite widely, both in terms of the sizes and the way they are structured. Um, in our department, students are required to get experience in a sort of wide range of subjects. There is theory. There is also courses on both quantitative and qualitative analysis that are required. Um, also, from what I gather, the it's fair to say that the theory section of our department is uh, on the woke end of the spectrum in terms of the emphasis, the assigned readings, such like that. So I do think it is fair to say, right, that um, I got some sense of what it would look like for there to be these kind of woke theories in education front, you know, like directly. Um, and also, I think it's fair to say that the education world overall, as I'll try to point out here, has a pretty wide range of approaches concerning theory and practice, and that it gets even more complicated when you move out of these academic settings and into, you know, K through 12 classrooms or something like that. It doesn't appear to me from what I've seen so far, that there is some sort of woke hegemony controlling all thought and methods within the world of education. 
So in my first year, I took six courses, which is the normal load for a full-time PhD student. It was a fairly demanding workload with a minimum of about 40 pages of reading per class per week, most weeks, with that ballooning up to reading entire books for some classes certain weeks. Um, it made for an intense pace. I got to cover a lot of ground, which I found to be very valuable. Uh, two of those courses were what we call the, the pro seminar. So this is a, a program, a class specifically for uh, nominally, specifically for the PhD cohort as they are entering together at the beginning of their program. They all take this class together. Um, in our case, the first semester focused on, again, capital T kinds of theory. The second semester focused more on uh, various kinds of uh, traditional debates and methods around methods like testing and accountability um, within education. So... Uh, the other courses I took the first semester was a class called Education and Society, which is primarily sort of the theory class for EDD students. Um, those tend to be working educators who aren't necessarily interested in doing education research, but are interested in sort of developing their pedagogy through more advanced training. Um, and then I also took a class called Gender and Education, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, I took, let's see, um, the reason I took the Ed and Society course, even though it overlapped heavily with the content that we also ended up covering in the first semester of our ProSem, was because that I was coming from this analytic philosophy background and had literally zero formal training in education or education theory. And so I was worried that like I would need to catch up on that history stuff. And it really did turn out uh, quite well because those two classes ended up complementing each other. So in one class, you know, when I'd be reading a primary text by someone like Foucault, in the other class, I would be reading secondary materials, analyzing it. And and sometimes they switched back and forth sort of week to week on who was doing the primary and the secondary texts. So it was good because it gave me a real dense sort of immersive crash course in this whole world of thought that doesn't really make its way into um, analytic philosophy departments for the most part. But it also meant that I got to see specifically how these materials are presented to EDD students as compared to PhD students. And for the most part, there was a lot of, like I said, overlap. I think, you know, there it's fairly similar sort of what is being talked about in at these different sort of um, in these different uh, programs. Um, so I think I can infer a little bit at least from that sort of what is making it out into the world by, you know, these EDD educators. So um, in the second semester, I took a course on race, inequality and education, which was uh, great. And it sort of rounded out the readings from that first semester of pro seminar. And I also took a course on education in the post-truth world in the sort of uh, psych side of the department. And that turned out to be like a total dream course about studies on polarization and conspiracism and different lenses uh, for approaching the post-truth enlightened in the um, epistemic crisis that we're all kind of dealing with here. So, you know, I was able to bring that into a lot of the public conspiracism uh, work that I do. So generally, I would say that I was um, 
the reason that I slanted it this way is because I was encouraged going into the program to start with kind of theory specific theory heavy courses so that when I went to the methods courses, the quant and the qualitative courses, um, I would have a sense of like how I wanted to apply those methods towards sort of working with these theories that I had already learned about. And I think hopefully that's going to work out well. Um, for example, I uh, have been working on a paper that I hope to get published at some point about um, specifically secular communities, how individuals in secular communities tend to face uh, marginalization because of their secular identity and how those communities develop various forms of non-dominant cultural capital, which is an idea from critical race theory, um, and how those communities can apply that capital in order to sort of resist the kind of stereotype threats that are applied still to atheists and, and non-believers, broadly speaking, uh, today. So here's a list of the theories and some of the key concepts I learned. And this is just in the first semester pro-sem, um, and it's in roughly the order that they were assigned. It's a long list, um, and it hopefully conveys the sort of breadth of theory that is actually in play in the education world. So in first semester, we studied uh, critical social theory or critical theory. I think those two are sort of bleed into each other. Marxism, structuralism, hegemony, neo-Marxism, social and cultural reproduction, social capital and stereotype threat, double consciousness, the factory model of education, racial capitalism, uh, racial project, uh, projects and racial formation, post-structuralism, post-modernism, Foucauldian analysis, biopower, post-colonialism and decolonialism, pedagogy of the oppressed, decolonial violence, necropower, Afro-pessimism, Afro-futurism, feminist theory, critical race theory, queer theory, affect theory, disability studies, and disability crit. And that was just that first semester of ProSem. Uh, the gender and ed class that I took added in, obviously, a bunch of gender theory, discussions of heteronormativity and colonialism, intersections of race and gender, critiques of neoliberal globalization and monolithic approaches to uh, feminism by the kind of white Western liberals, um, sex ed, queer of color material, all sorts of additional stuff. And then in the Ed and Society course, we discussed also related topics like the shift from the deficit model of education, where students are seen as lacking or at risk, to the asset model of education, where we as educators try to call on the cognitive and social resources that students possess, that they actually have, and that we can help them, you know, develop further. So, you know, we also discussed uh, in a, the EDD course of the critical whiteness studies, anti-racism, whiteness as property, borderlands, immigration theory, ableism, and subaltern studies. So I would say, you know, the full breadth and width of everything that anyone has ever sort of considered labeling woke studies in this way. Now, I could go on sort of listing theories. Uh, I don't think it's ultimately great content. I really just want to drive home that the field of education 
when you when you recognize that these are not all the same theories is actually extremely diverse just on the theory theory side of things right we haven't even brought in all of the stuff that's going on in the developmental site classes of which i've only gotten to take one so far um so critical race theory itself which you heard on that list right it is central in various ways that i think are are worth discussing it you know influences a variety of the other um fields of thought uh but it's also i would say not essential to even a plurality of the theories that i just mentioned um, many of the theories that i just mentioned strongly contradict critical race theory and many of them contradict each other right so for example afro pessimism especially the as, as sort of laid out by um, wilderson is sort of a clear-cut example of something that pushes back on critical race theory because it is generally far more skeptical about liberalism. Like, if y'all think that critical race theory is skeptical of liberalism, read Afro-pessimism. Um, and it is very skeptical of the idea of interest convergence and of, as far as I can tell, of meaningful change of any sort compared to what you see in the critical race theorists. Um, so that said, CRT is influential, Many scholars have sought to incorporate it into some of the other theories that I just mentioned, and I think doing so is good and produces valuable results. So, for example, uh, disability crit or discrit involves trying to improve what we think of as sort of classic disability studies by incorporating insights from critical race theory that emphasizes how societal systems create a world where being disabled is unnecessarily burdensome. This sort of shift in focus uh, uh, changes how we try to uh, address what, what sort of efforts we put towards addressing the uh, experiences of individuals with disabilities, uh, shifting from trying to quote unquote, fix the person, right, to fixing the society that is making their lives more difficult um, than is necessary. I've talked about this uh, on the show with, with previous guests. My sense from experts who do work in disability uh, crit is that it is, you know, the argument basically, this this kind of view, while, while it seems valuable, remains largely underutilized in the sort of world of applied education in favor of the more classical operant conditioning style training methods where the aim is to shape the behavior of the individual with disabilities you know through a slightly more humane version of the way we train pets this is particularly in the case of individuals um, with things like autism uh, the discrete folks it seems like also argue that there is sort of an emphasis on predictable, quantifiable results and methods that can achieve, quote-unquote, predictable, quantifiable results, um, and that this gives an advantage to kind of more dehumanizing methods of conditioning in much the same way that uh, therapists, I think, across America have wrestled with insurance companies kind of demanding that, that they adopt certain kinds of approaches because they can be sort of assured results within a certain period of time, even if that's not the best method for the particular individual uh, that they are treating. So whatever you think about these debates, about how we should approach is issues for people with disabilities, 
you know, all of this should at least disabuse you of the notion that there is a a clean uniformity of belief in even, you know, the the woke part of the education department world. Um, And that broadly speaking, I would say the woke have have very little to know, like not a lot of substantial influence over various kinds of policy. I won't say, you know, no influence on any policy, but it seems like, you know, they are facing a lot of um, they're facing a lot of inertia and and sort of intractability as, um, you know, in terms of revising these systems. Now, I won't list every author uh, we covered in all of these fields, but it's basically a lot of the kind of, you know, greatest hits of who you'd think of with a few interesting exceptions. So we definitely read Marx, Bourdieu, we read Gramsci, Foucault, Fanon, probably mispronouncing at least one of those names still. Um, Interestingly, at no point were we assigned Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi not even in the sections explicitly titled anti-racism and critical whiteness studies. I think that it says something at least about, you know, whether or not they are popular out there in the world still, they are, I think, not viewed as being even as central to those fields when it comes to education as folks like the people we read, like Ladson Billings, Du Bois, um, and, you know, those are the people that we end up talking a lot about when we were just debate talking about debating race, including whiteness. Um, ideas like, you know, whether race is an empty signifier, which is to say that it has a concept with no essential content, just that, a, you know, so cultures attach to it whatever things they want to attach to it at a given time. Uh, We also discuss the concept of whiteness as a kind of property or currency that can be effectively spent in one's life, sort of taking after the ideas around social and cultural capital. And I think all of these are interesting and valuable ways to talk about this. For me personally, that talk of sort of whiteness, um, I know that talk about whiteness and white supremacy is kind of unpopular in a lot of circles. Um, But like I say, I personally found it very valuable Um, learning about sort of the history of whiteness um, because I I personally am a Americanized, very Americanized half Jewish guy who easily passes as white as long as you don't have to try to pronounce my name, right? Um, My Jewish identity insofar as I have one, like many secular Jewish people, is a kind of weird mix of family activities and you know, some vague, like a, like a, an awareness that parts of your family were murdered many years ago by Nazis and many of them fled and a sort of, there are mixed feelings about issues, things like Israel. So it's this weird mix of cultural tropes, you know, my Jewish Bronx atheist family who like to debate and argue that I picked up all of these things um, from, and then sort of mixed with you know, on the other side of my family being sort of very conventionally white Protestant and then growing up in, you know, suburban Virginia in an area where there were no Jewish communities near me that I was aware of. We didn't go to any sort of Jewish communities. We went to a Unitarian Universalist church. Um, you know, I got bullied growing up because, of course, I did, but like mostly not for being Jewish. I think probably most of the people around me didn't have any idea that I was Jewish. I, there, was, there were people who would call me rabbi as a shorten of my name, Rabinowitz, and I'm not even convinced they necessarily knew that I was Jewish. Um, so, like, it, it isn't, 
it isn't as straightforward in sort of understanding what identity was like. Um, and then, you know, so you, you add to that that like these days when I'm arguing or talking about things like race and someone wants to sort of undermine me or paint me in a, in a, a as a colonial aggressor or something like that, they will refer to me as a white male and treat me as such. Um, and, and will suggest that I you know, have no skin in the game or, um, you know, that I, I don't take these kinds of issues seriously or all those sorts of things, you know, forgetting that, um, you know, just because they see me as white, it doesn't necessarily mean that like white supremacists, you know, when they hear my name or my background or engage with my material also see me as white. Uh, there's a line from Philip K. Dick, the adaptation actually of Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle um, that has stuck with me where one of them says, you know, Jews don't get to decide when they're Jews. Um, and they're really, you know, what I've learned about this whiteness study stuff and folks, you know, reading folks like Fanon and Du Bois and, and Fanon especially particularly talks about how the treatment of blacks and the treatment of Jews um, is very similar. It's this idea that, you know, whiteness is a property that others assign to you as a way to either include you or exclude you as needed in a particular moment. I've been assigned white by most people in my life, and that is largely as a result meant a lot of fairly privileged, you know, sailing on a variety of fronts, um, though it does get also used as this kind of weird weapon against me. And, uh, you know, I'm strongly in favor, if nothing else, of students learning about how weird identity is and about how these issues will come up in their life um, and learning about that sort of early and more explicitly, I think, in the hope of understanding earlier what it means to say that race is a construct um, and that it is a hugely impactful construct people wield against each other on a regular basis. So uh, there have been a lot of highlights over the semester. Um, just being a full-time student has been probably a, you know one of the most amazing experiences after almost 10 years of not being a student, of being a, a adjunct, of just getting by at various points. Um, and having that, having that program start out during a PhD, while well, not ideal, was still it was still a really great experience. My cohort um, has been wonderful. We've got study groups, and you know we've helped each other through this crisis. Um, and I've found that there have been lots of great people that I wanted to collaborate with. My my professors have been thoughtful and very supportive, and have gone above and beyond despite the current situation. Um, I've been lucky in the sense to be able to work from home for the year when many people were forced to do otherwise. Um, even though Zoom classes were, you know, genuinely soul crushing, it meant that I got to be, you know, home with um, my puppy and things like that. Um, the best part, you know, obviously home with my wife, which is wonderful. Um, the best part is, you know, that I just the being challenged um, with new ways of seeing the world in a community of people who are also interested in being challenged in that way, I thought was really valuable. Now, so let's say in terms of content, um, the highlights for me, I've been deeply sort of very engrossed by post-colonialism and decolonialism and the theories that incorporate that, which include things like critical race theory. So, you know, I wasn't 
before this, I wouldn't say that I was like totally ignorant of the horrors of colonialism or I knew about the Trail of Tears. You learn about the, you know, the death of a bunch of Native Americans and things, um, but you still also get a lot of the like um, lost cause narratives where I was um, growing up. I, I would say I wasn't ignorant, but I also wasn't nearly as well versed as I would have liked to have been or am hopefully going to eventually be. Um, I've brought up a bunch of books recently that I really do highly recommend. They're all really great audiobooks because that's been how I've been able to get through a lot of these um, while, you know, taking care of a puppy and such. Uh, I've been, let's see, uh, frequent books that I want to recommend. Uh, Learning to Divide the World. I've said that one a bunch, and I talked about it in one of our bonus content. Uh, Gods of the Upper Air. Um, these are two examples of uh, books that really help me make sense of this idea of colonial knowledge production and the way that science was used to justify um, centuries of abuse and oppression as being sort of natural and ethical. Um, and the way that our modern world is generally constructed in such a way that we think of it as natural and permanent when it's like anything but. Um, other things that were really helpful for learning more detail about the horrors of colonialism was The Anarchy, which is a book about British colonialism and the famine in India. Um, one of the you know one of the famines in india uh king leopold's ghost which is about the horrors of belgian colonialism in the congo uh or in congo um and the fire is upon us which is about uh the is centered around the baldwin buckley debate um which is an amazing debate that i absolutely recommend uh checking out i because of some of like the projects that i was working on over the course of the past year i got i've gotten into a kick on sort of reading a bunch of stuff about baldwin and um the way that writers were trying to address issues during that period so these sorts of analyses, um, which many of which do influence critical race theorists, um, seem essential in my mind to sort of fully understanding history. Just, you know, that's something that we should be providing students whether or not they're going to get to go to grad school. It shouldn't be the case that you don't know about these things if you don't go to grad school. And it definitely shouldn't be the case that students have to learn about the Tulsa massacre from things like HBO's Watchmen, which is how I learned about it. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it before. Um, so speaking of HBO, one of the passion projects this year that uh, I really loved was writing this paper about HBO's Lovecraft Country. I would say I've never enjoyed writing a paper this much. I got to weave together some media that I think is really impactful and valuable with theories about uh, the significance of naming, the role of necropower, and the tension that I see between Afro-pessimism and Afro-futurism in Afrocentric sci-fi from the earliest periods of Afrocentric sci-fi. So in the paper, I wrestle with how much media like Lovecraft Country can actually contribute to change. Sort of what does this material say about the needs for revolutionary violence? Um, and does this media make it possible to avoid revolutionary violence? Or does it make it more just the case that revolutionary violence might actually be successful in bringing about change? Um, I feel generally deeply unsettled these days about what works and what doesn't. And sort of the more I read about education, the more I struggle to remain optimistic. On that front, 
I feel like I went through two phases over the past year. The, the first phase involved learning about the history of educational problems enough to feel like educational problems seem to be mostly downstream of larger social issues around wealth inequality and systemic injustice. It just seemed to me that uh, until we fix those issues, educational reform would mostly be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, incorporating alternative ways of learning is really wonderful, but it is kind of, I think, a band-aid over the fact that, for example, schools are basically still as segregated as they were during actual segregation. So that was phase one. Phase two was uh, a shift from towards thinking that sort of the upstream downstream framing is not helpful and mostly an illusion because everything seems to be kind of upstream of everything else. It's just one giant messy ocean of problems. You don't get change, it seems like, until you educate people to bring about change. And you can't educate people to bring about change until change has already occurred. So it seems like you're in this paradox where you don't get change until you've already got change. And then the question becomes, how does change even occur or does it? Does it maybe never occur at all? Um, this get, got me back to this kind of paradox of progress that I'm continuing to struggle with. And I don't, I don't know how to answer the question, have we actually made progress? It seems like the answer is an obvious yes, first of all. And you can point to you know, the abolishing of slavery. But then there are all of these examples like our prison system where it seems like um, you know, we have made progress and yet we haven't. And yet, you know, things are actually getting worse in many cases when it comes to things like climate change. So, you know, overflowing jails uh, and schools that remain segregated, a racial wealth gap that is ever widening, um, is even wider rather than it was during um, segregational periods. Like all of these to me make it hard to cleanly say that we do actually make progress. Um, materiality seems to remain so stuck and many seem to suffer as a result. Uh, yet, you know, we still try to press on and, and sometimes it seems like we make some incremental gains. It just, it mostly feels like we're drowning in an ocean of problems and epistemic crises and the temperature is just steadily rising. So, you know, in the face of that reality, I'm really struggling with what to do. And honestly, I feel like much of what I'm doing probably doesn't matter, but I don't see anything else I could do that would substantially matter more. Um, I know that, and this is where I struggle because I know that like fatalism and giving up is its own kind of privilege and its own sort of bad, but this is honestly where I'm at with the struggle these days and I don't, I don't know where to go next. Um, so... There have been some weak points in the course. I'll, I'll you know, I'll get to goes to those now, right? I won't pretend that everything has been perfect. Um, I would say on the theory side, you know, I spent the year hearing about things like alternative ways of knowing, but I don't, I don't fully feel like I could comfortably defend the idea or standpoint epistemology or the practical implications very well. This may be a result of me being a me mediocre epistemologist. I'll fully admit that. Um, and I don't doubt that there is good work out there being done on the issue. Uh, but the articles I read on the subject often felt like they, they didn't get past the broad ideas of different cultures uh, and experiences pushing different ways of knowing. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sympathetic to like holistic approaches that are out of step with atomistic science. And that the way that atomistic science has dominated the modern era has caused various problems in various fields. 
you know, so the best I could do with this stuff, I felt like was connect it to the situated cognition material that I teach in AI ethics, um, where you think about sort of the whole gestalt of the learning experience, which includes both the learner, the educator and the environment in trying to facilitate the best educational outcome. Um, you know, I think. I really do think that like there's not, there's nothing to this. I think debates over ways of knowing is actually one of the key pieces of our current epistemic crisis, and it may perhaps be the most under-emphasized and, and sort of under-managed um, sort of factor, especially compared to, I think, the more heavily covered um, explanations like cognitive biases or psychological flaws or growing apathy towards truth in general. I do think that there are a lot of folks who feel they genuinely have different kinds of access to knowledge, which makes it hard for them to have conversations. Um, but, you know, given how much alternative ways of knowing come up in the public discourse, I, I would have valued a more, you know, some more clear cut examples of its proper application. I feel like I got that more with some of the other um, theories. So, you know, and this is this is also something that um, based on, on chats with other students in, you know, um, small groups, I, I think this was a challenge that applied uh, for, you know, there's a challenge of applying the material that everybody was struggling with to some extent. Um, especially I think folks who didn't come from some kind of theory background, right? I wasn't coming from this theory background, but I was at least coming from an analytic philosophy background. Um, some of many of the educators I interacted with were very keen to improve their students' educational experiences, but they really genuinely struggled to see how particular readings had any application to their pedagogy. Uh, I felt like you know, I would have valued more time spent on here's what this looks like in practice. Here are exercises that can be done to apply this particular idea. Now, uh, to its credit, one of the books that we used beyond critique, uh, which I highly recommend as an intro for anyone who wants to read about a bunch of these theories, includes in each chapter some examples of how the theory presented in that chapter can be applied in the classroom. Uh, and for many of those theories, there were very straightforward and well-supported interventions available. Um, but even with that, I still felt unsure you know, how to make better use of the concept of standpoint epistemology. So I just wanted to highlight that as just one one spot that felt a little weak to me. I also would have preferred if there'd been a bit more room in some of the class periods for uh, debate over the theories. I felt like it, it wasn't that criticism was verboten. It was more that the class environment had a very strong sort of yes and vibe to it. Um, and that sort of some of the discussions tended to kind of turn into... Uh, love fests about a particular concept that I felt, you know, didn't necessarily produce as much interrogation of that as ideas as I would have liked. Now, some of that is possibly coming from an analytic philosophy background, and I recognize that maybe I'm more likely to be used to very argumentative class behavior. And it wasn't that I want people to be at each other's throats. Um, it was just that, you know, even with a tempered expectation about um, you know, the dialogue in this kind of way, I still felt that we were sometimes left underprepared for, you know, addressing criticism that might actually arise when we we're attempting to apply some of these materials out there in the world. And especially, you know, given that we're in the midst of a moral panic about 
you know, CRT in schools, I really want educators to feel maximally prepared to address min misinformation and, and, and as well as to address accurate criticisms. And so discussing those various different kinds of criticisms, it seems like is an essential part of helping them with these materials. You know, without more practical guidance, I do worry that many teachers would just either not incorporate these materials into their pedagogy um, you know, they just do that not, not because of resistance, but because of a lack of understanding on how to do so in a sophisticated way that avoids outrage. One example of this issue of approaches um, was that one kind of mixed interaction I had over the semester, uh, which involved another student privately suggesting um, that I back off of commenting um, as much in class in response to other students' statements, um, because specifically as a, a white student, I should focus more on listening and um, because my responses were making other people uncomfortable. Now, it probably won't be surprising to listeners that I have struggled uh, over the course of my life with being that student um, in class. I don't enjoy it. I have, have tried actively to alter my behaviors in such a way as to not be that student. Um, you know, in this case, I was trying to frame my responses in sort of an inclusive manner and, and wasn't sort of criticizing other students in any way. Um, but I think, you know, a mix of uh, you know, the fully online experience causing many to have a harder time engaging. You know, it's not unsurprising there'd be some tension there. Um, in this particular case, we were discussing racial justice issues, and I brought up a thought that tied into class analysis because I had just been in the other class reading about black Marxism. Uh, the individual who messaged me felt that I was downplaying the role of race in favor of discussing class, which I fully acknowledge is a common move that reactionaries make. Um, when I explained that I was referencing the, the black Marxism stuff, they suggested that I shouldn't bring that material into this class where it wasn't assigned um, because that might um, confuse other students, which I, I do understand, though I also struggle with, given that I really do enjoy the interconnected nature of these different topics. Um, moreover, as I said, they, they felt in particular that I was um, especially problematic given that, uh, given, given my perceived racial background. And there, you know, like I was saying earlier, I honestly don't know what to feel about being labeled as just another white guy, given that my name is Aaron, Aaron David Rabinowitz, right? Um, and that it was visible, you know, uh, next to my face in every class period. Um, I think if folks do want to make use of, you know, uh, racial identity as part of their understanding of the world, then they need to be, it seems like, you know, sophisticated at least in terms of, um, individuals who sit on the borders of particular types of racial identities. And I've seen this in both woke and anti-woke communities. Um, and it, it does have real implications for how people react to you. And I guess I would also say it has given me some insight into those uh, how these approaches can produce reactionary responses from people who are sort of less unquestionably white. Um, now, that said, right, the encounter wasn't a serious issue, though. It was in private. I responded that I believed my responsibility as a student was to try to understand the material and to engage with my classmates. Um, and that while I agree in principle that more listening to people of color is better, 
I consider classrooms to be this sort of specialized liminal environment where, you know, we should engage in more robust dialogue. Um, though I, I did also choose to sit back some and, and phrase my comments sort of even more or less directly as responses uh, to other students' comments, um, even if those initial responses had been aimed constructively. Um, ultimately, Right. I, I do think that me and this individual at least reach enough of an understanding that there weren't any further complaints, though I acknowledge, of course, that it's quite possible they just kept the further criticisms um, to themselves. What is important, though, I guess, in, for, to me in sharing this story is that this individual did this privately. They did it respectfully. And there were absolutely no consequences for me when I pushed back some. I do understand the concern that if I had been less willing to push back, this interaction could have damaged my educational experience. And I do take that concern seriously for other individuals. Um, but ultimately, I, I am glad that this person felt they could say something and, and if they felt compelled to do so. Um, and the fact that it, this sort of one very mild exchange was the closest I got to anything that any, you know, anti-woke individual might consider problematic pushback in a, in a long year of raising objections to all of the sacred cows of theory. Um, it gives me a lot of relief about the current moral panic over education and indoctrination. The point I want to emphasize the most in all of this is that the demonizing of educators as members of a dangerous cult is absolutely fucked up. The folks I interacted with, especially in the EDD class, were so clearly passionate um, about how they could best serve their children. And they were directly tuned in to the unique issues in their school systems. These teachers, they cared so much they were taking evening classes on top of fully remote teaching workloads during a pandemic. Every week, they showed up looking more and more like death, and still they put in the work to understand and incorporate these materials. And there was, there was just no cultish indoctrination. There was no reciting from the Bible of white fragility. There was no callous dehumanizing of their critics. Um, there's uh, this unfortunately long history of conservative reactionaries attacking teachers as the primary vector of indoctrination because conservatives, I think, correctly recognize that better pedagogy makes their jobs harder. Um, sometimes this has been done under the guise of attacking teachers' unions uh, more frequently nowadays. Um, and it is, you know, I think, often just an excuse to defund public education and shift more resources towards charter schools. So, you know, I'm going to close here by saying I implore folks to avoid material that contributes to the demonizing of teachers. If there is content you're worried about, um, then by all means raise those concerns. But priming students and parents to see school as a battleground and see teachers as the enemy is killing our society, I think, worse than CRT ever could. So let me be clear. If you have concerns about CRT and education, that's totally fine, and I'm happy to have that conversation. If you're cheering on the work of moral panic producers like Chris Rufo and James Lindsay that make teachers' lives scary and harder than they already are, we are not on the same team. If you're credulously sharing every highly edited clip trying to raise fear about the looming threat of CRT, we are not on the same team. If you are in favor of vaguely worded bans about divisive ideas, you are very much part of the problem, in my opinion. Those laws are likely to produce three kinds of reactions in the teachers that I've met. 
some teachers will simply, you know, decide it's not worth the risk to teach controversial material, which will mean you are depriving students of a robust education. Some teachers will continue to use CRT as part of their pedagogy and will do so with sort of maximal care and preparation in how they present it, which is the best possible outcome in this context. And some will double down on teaching CRT in a very open and aggressive kind of way, which is, I think, an understandable reaction to the specious accusations raised against them. But I worry it will also produce more content for the anti-woke to exploit. Now, I think most of my listeners hearing that list are going to want there to be lots of group two, but group two depends on funding and it depends on support for teachers or it depends on the teachers having the personal luck of extra time and resources to fulfill what is essentially an unfunded mandate of additional preparation. Without that, you are going to get a lot of teachers just not engaging with this content, which is what the conservative reactionaries want. And you'll also get a lot more escalatory reactions to fuel their panic, which is what they want. It's depressing to watch, and I really do hope that teachers will be able to avoid feeding the panic while successfully educating their students, and that the moral panic will burn itself out without sufficient fuel, but that shouldn't be what we have to depend on here. We should be out there defending teachers and defending free expression of controversial ideas in the classroom. We should be pushing back in no uncertain terms against the misinformation about CRT in schools. CRT is a valuable part of modern pedagogy and needs to be defended as such. So if you are worried about bad instances of CRT in schools, rare as they may be, then please focus on supporting teachers who are doing this work by not promoting a moral panic that leaves them terrified. A recent poll found something like 78% of teachers think the moral panic is getting in the way of having functional discussions of race in America. And if you look at the performative outrage that Fox News has ginned up, it's clearly meant to shut down productive discourse. So please, Stop trusting moral panic grifters like Rufo and Lindsay and the people in their ecosystems who give the false impression of a serious movement when all you have is the next generation of reactionary pushback to social progress. I personally am excited for another year of being challenged by this content and getting to teach critical race theory myself um, and continuing to expand my own understanding of how injustice reproduces itself generation after generation even when many people think that they and society are past such terrible things. Before I end, uh, I want to say two things. First, I want to note for longtime listeners of the show, I want to let you know that I've heard from GW. He's doing well, and we are cool. I also wanted to give a shout out to Louisa Lyons, my darling wife and editor. If you ever listen to an episode and you're really feeling the void, remember... <laughs> Lou has to edit that episode at 1x speed. She's the real hero here for enabling all this voidiness, which is why I also want to thank our patrons who make it possible for me to properly compensate her for her time and suffering. Without y'all, none of this would be possible. So like every episode, let me thank our all-time patrons, many of whom have stuck with us from the beginning. Thanks to our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, CampQuest.org, 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 uh, Cormot Orkman on Twitch, uh, and all of the thanks to our 
Archduke level patrons, big easy blasphemy, those creepy little void eyes that stare into my soul, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on the podcast the app of your choosing. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, 200 episodes in, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.